Let me, uh, let me add my welcome to, uh, to each of you this morning um, and to any of you that might be visiting with us today. My name is, is Steve. I'm one of the uh, elder candidates here at New Life. Um, did everybody enjoy their spring break this week? Yeah? Oh, no. Oh, no. How terrible. So is everybody ready to go back to school tomorrow? Yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I've got something to tell you that happened to me this week. You know, I, I've always, always try to uh, do some kind of self-deprecating humor before I get started. Um, <clears throat> let me tell you a little something that happened to me this week on, on spring break. Um, y'all that know me, um, I have two adult children, and how they ever got to adulthood, I really don't know. Uh, but, uh, but they did. But this week, uh, Sandra and Megan had something that they had to do really early one morning. So, <clears throat> so Colt and Kenley spent the night with Sandra and I. So Sandra and Megan get up really early and take off to go do what they've got to do. And they left me with Colt and Kenley. I kept them by myself for four hours. Now, I do need to tell you this. They were asleep three of those hours. <clears throat> okay? So, uh, so they get up, and <clears throat> I've got to... My job is to take them to my sister-in-law's, who is going to keep them until uh, Sandra and Megan gets back. Um, so, <clears throat> so they wake up, and uh, we're, we're getting ready. And what I didn't know was apparently Sandra had had a conversation with Colt the night before and said, now you're going to have to help Pa with getting everything ready. So, <clears throat> so Colt, we're, we're getting ready to, you know, we get Kenley up and we get diapers changed and we get all that stuff done. And Colt comes in and says, don't forget the milk. And then he comes back and he says, don't forget the backpack. And I'm looking at him and I said, how do you know what? Gigi told me to remind you of all this stuff. So between Colt and I, we took care of Kenley, didn't we, buddy? Thank you so much for your help. Uh, but uh, anyway, I thought that was, uh, that, that was my big moment for this week. I kept the kids for four hours. And y'all that know me know that is a huge deal because I'm never going to be grandparent of the year. Uh, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. Now, I love my grandkids. I do. I love them dearly, uh, but I like it a whole lot better when somebody else has got responsibility for them uh, and that they're, they're swinging on somebody else's uh, ceiling fan um, or something. I'm kidding, kids. Don't, children, don't, don't do that. I'm just I'm playing. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, that was, uh, that was my excitement for the week. Um, now that to get serious for just a sec, uh, I mentioned to you a minute ago that uh, that I'm an elder candidate here, and um, one of the things that uh, that I realized when uh, when I felt God putting that on my heart was that if I if, if I was going to do this, if I was going to aspire to be an elder. I wanted to be totally open 
and honest with you guys. Um, and <clears throat> I want you to know that, uh, that I covet your prayers always, uh, but I especially covet your prayers during this process. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to the leadership here for helping through helping me through what has probably been one of the most humbling um, yet edifying processes that, that I've ever been through. Um, it's been overwhelming at times, um, but there are days when I am absolutely, totally certain that this is what God wants me to do, without a question. And then there's other days where I think, what am I doing? What, what, what am I doing at, at my age up here trying to put, to put together a sermon and stand in front of you guys and, and preach to you what God's truths are? Um, what am I doing? <clears throat> but then I look at the broken, sinful world that our kids uh, are, are in and that we're leaving for our kids and grandchildren. And it, make, and it really makes me realize that God's still got work for me to do. Um, it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your place in life. Um, I don't have the ability of my own to do anything, to fix anything. But I do know that there are small things that I can do uh, when I follow God's lead uh, that, uh, that can help. So here I am again, standing up here, <clears throat> asking for your prayers, your patience with me uh, as I seek to, as best I know how, to, uh, to share with you what God has, uh, has laid on my heart for this week. Um, let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for uh, being the, the very definition, the very essence of love, of grace, of mercy. Father, I thank you that, uh, that, that you can use us no matter what our state in life is to help build your kingdom. I'm humbled, Father, that, uh, that, I, that I have this opportunity this morning. Father, I pray that you uh, fill me with your spirit. Allow me to think clearly. Allow me to speak clearly and boldly. I pray that I'm able to uh, share the truths that you have shown me about this passage. And I pray that, that this passage is, is crystal clear so that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, that before they leave today, that they will understand what being born again really means. 
I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Y'all ready to get started? Okay. Okay, so <clears throat> the big idea for today, uh, or what I'd like for you to walk away with today, is a better understanding that God's regenerative work brings new life to our hearts through the spotless cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. God's regenerative work brings new life to our hearts through the spotless cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Now this morning we're going to continue our series in John 3 entitled The Law and the Gospel, You Must Be Born Again. For the last several weeks, we've looked at this, and uh, we've looked at this meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus, and you're probably thinking, again? Uh, yes, we're going to look at it again, because this is different than studies that we may have done in the past where we take chunks of Scripture and we spend time dissecting that and seeing what God is saying in that chunk of Scripture. But in this part of John 3, there is so much in each word, each phrase in these verses that there's just no way that we can take that in, at one time. It'd just be overwhelming to try to understand. So just like that old saying, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, that's what we're going to do. So, the, over the last few weeks, Kyle and Jasper have done an awesome job unpacking verses 1 through 4 for us. <clears throat> and now, me putting all my faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to try my best to do the same for verse 5. So that's where we're going to be this morning, is in John 3, verse 5. But since these verses build upon themselves, we're going, to, uh, we're going to back up again, just like we have, and we're going to start um, in the chapter previous, in, in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 23, because that kind of sets up uh, everything that we're going to talk about. So let's look at uh, John 2, starting in verse 23, where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust them to Him because He knew all the people and no one and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. So continuing in chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless it is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So a quick review. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now let's talk about the Passover for just a second. Um, we know that uh, when, when Jesus or when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, they celebrated the first Passover meal. And during that time that they were in the desert, <clears throat> God gave them seven feasts that they were to observe. Um, and I will say this, if you have never taken a look at those seven feasts in detail, they are amazing. They are um, a types and shadows of Jesus to come, and the, the relationship is just absolutely amazing. But Passover uh, was a festive occasion. It was a celebration of Israel's release from Egyptian bondage. And um, if, we, if we take a look at those feasts, it gives us a better understanding of why the Jews thought the way they did and the, and the reason that they still think the way they do. To me, if we don't get our minds wrapped around the Jewish thought process and the thought process of that day, uh, when, we're, when we're reading Scripture, we kind of miss something. So I want to kind of give you an idea of what Jerusalem looked like during that Passover feast. Um, as best we can tell, now you can always find different numbers, but as best we can tell, uh, Jerusalem during that time would have been about 230 acres in size. And it's normal population would have been somewhere around 25,000. So that's still a lot of people, 25,230 acres, that's, that's a lot. So, so even on a normal day in Jerusalem, it's busy. Now, Josephus, who was the first century Roman uh, Jewish historian, he places the number of those attending Passover at 2 million. Now, Josephus is known to kind of stretch things and kind of twist things a little bit. So I did a little bit more research and found that a, really a more realistic number may have been somewhere around 500,000. But we're still, think about that. We're going from a typical population of 25,000 to all of a sudden, within the week or two leading up to Passover, We've got a half a million people in town. So even if you take the lower estimate of 500,000 and, and not Josephus is 2 million, that would mean that every house in town, every hotel in town, every Motel 6, every Airbnb, every palm-leaf-covered hut would have been full of people. And you're not going to be able to get that many people inside the walls of Jerusalem, so they would have even been camped outside of the walls. And remember, too, that each one of those families had come to Jerusalem 
to sacrifice a lamb. So each one of those families were keeping a lamb for that week leading up to that Friday when, when uh, the lambs were sacrificed. And then, on top of all that, we've got Roman soldiers there. Because there would have been a garrison of Roman soldiers there because Rome is not about to let this many Jews get together in one place at one time without having some sort of control to keep from having, having an uprising or a riot. So I think it's, it's safe to say that during this time, Jerusalem was chaotic. Of course, Jesus being in Jerusalem was very well known, so we have to assume that He was also surrounded constantly by people. So, try to wrap your head around this. The fact that Nicodemus was actually able to find Jesus in that crowd of people was pretty amazing. But then for them to be able to find a place where it was quiet enough for them to have this type of conversation that we've talked about over the last few weeks, that to me is nothing but a miracle of God because it was, it was apparent that that was the time and the place for Jesus and Nicodemus to have that eternally significant conversation. So now... Keep all that in mind as we remember now that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's thoroughly schooled in, in all the uh, Jewish faith. He's probably got most of the Old Testament committed to memory. And he begins his conversation with Jesus by admitting that no one could do the things that he does without being from God. And as Kyle mentioned in his sermon, that's a huge step for Nicodemus to take. Jesus then goes on to tell Nicodemus that he must be born again, which Nicodemus doesn't understand. And he is um, he's, he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand what? Salvation, right? So now we come to our focus this morning, which is verse 5. Let me read that again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. So while you're right there looking at verse 5, <clears throat> go back up a couple of verses and look at verse 3. I want you to notice that those two verses are almost identical. There's just a couple of differences. In verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And then in verse 5, he says he must be born of water and the Spirit. The only other difference is, is that Jesus in verse 3 mentions or says to see the kingdom of God. But in verse 5, he says, enter the kingdom of God. So, is Jesus just being redundant here? 
Is he just saying the same thing again? I don't think so. Let's, uh, let's take the, the quick one first and, and let's look at just the use of the word see and the use of the word enter. Now, <clears throat> I'm a pretty simple-minded guy. And, and to me, the words see and enter are totally different words. Um, but during all the preparation that I did for the sermon today, <clears throat> I looked at uh, all of the commentaries that the really smart guys write, and um, they didn't have very much to say about this. So I texted Kyle, and I said, hey, am I confused here? Am I missing something here? Uh, What's the deal with this? So Kyle had already, he had looked at this also. He'd noticed it also. And even in his study, what he found was that these two words are just used, in this case, synonymously. In other words, the scholars seem to put no importance in the difference between the use of these two words. So don't get confused between those two. Now let's move on and look at the use of born again in verse 3 and born of water and spirit in verse 5. Now you've, uh, you've heard in the last couple of weeks that uh, we have used uh, Stephen Lawson's book, uh, New Life in Christ, and I'll do that uh, quite a bit this morning. Uh, Lawson has a really keen understanding of the concept of regeneration and his comments uh, make it very helpful to, uh, to understand. But Lawson says, the new, birth not, the new birth does not simply repackage the exterior of our life, merely restructuring the outside of our life but not changing on the inside is like putting a Band-Aid on terminal cancer. It would be like rearranging the deck furniture on a sinking ship. Such behavior modification would be only a superficial approach to the problem. What is needed to alter the interior of our souls is the work of God in regeneration. The new birth makes us entirely new people from the inside out. It removes our old unbelieving heart and implants a new heart that believes. But before God places a new heart within a person, He must cleanse the, soul stain, the sin-stained soul. He will not place a clean heart inside a filthy soul. Cleaning us up on the inside, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is an eternally important part of the work of God. In, the, in our gen- regeneration, in our new birth. Now, all of this happens simultaneously. It's like two sides of the same coin. This act is a divine, metaphorically described, this divine act is described as God pouring water on our souls and washing them clean. So let's focus for a, for a moment on the statement, just unless one is born of water and spirit. What's the meaning of water here? How are we to understand being born of water? Whatever the meaning is, 
It's obviously important because Jesus begins His statement in verse 5 just as He did in verse 3, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, or as we would say, hey, 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 listen up. This is important. I'm telling you the truth. Now some take this reference to water to mean the water that is uh, in the amniotic fluid that comes from the mother during childbirth. But this is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Others interpret this water as referring to water baptism. However, Scripture does not require baptism as a requirement for salvation. Paul writes in Romans 10.13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He also says in Galatians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. And also, Titus 3, beginning in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Nothing we can do, nor any amount of water, can wash away our sin. Only the inner working of the Holy Spirit cleans the soul. Baptism is an important step of obedience after salvation, but is not a requirement of sin. Excuse me. Not a requirement for salvation. Let me say that again so we don't. Baptism is an important step of obedience after salvation, but is not a requirement for salvation. There are others who believe that this mention of water is a reference to the Word of God, which is possible. But those smart guys that I mentioned earlier in their commentaries believe that water here is best understood just as a symbol, a sign, a representation of the inner cleansing of the soul in the new birth, the miracle of regeneration. In verse 3, Nicodemus is told that he must be born again. But that's not the whole process. The process of regeneration is not complete until his soul is washed clean by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing supernatural about water. But his use of the term here is so that we, in our humanness, can better understand the concept of getting clean and restoration. There is no analogy used here for the Spirit. Spirit is the Spirit. What Jesus says here is simply that the Spirit does the work of the purification from sin of the polluted soul. Now just as we have in the last couple of weeks, we're going to turn to Ezekiel and use that reference. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. But before we go there, let me uh, kind of set this up for you. Ezekiel's name means God strengthens or may God strengthen. 
And that's a very appropriate name for a prophet that was called to proclaim a message of uncompromising judgment and later a message of a restoration of God's sake, for God's sake, not Israel's. Ezekiel lived out his prophetic career among the exiles in Babylon. In the ESV study Bible, at the beginning of each book, there's a portion called theme and purpose. So in the theme and purpose for the book of Ezekiel, it says this, Ezekiel spoke to a community forced from its home, a people who had broken faith with their God. As a spokesman for the God of Israel, Ezekiel spoke oracles that justified and proved the reputation of our holy God. Even though Ezekiel brings this God-centered point of view into its clearest words in verses 22 and 23, uh, we're going to continue on past 23 and we're going to look at uh, 22 through 27. So if you look again with me, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the God, I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, the primary purpose of Ezekiel's message was to restore God's glory. Ezekiel pleaded with the people of Israel to be reconciled to God by having their hearts washed clean. But then there's verse 25, which says, God's mercy once again is extended. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Now let's be clear here that the word sprinkle is not some prophetic word about sprinkling instead of immersion baptism. The concept of sprinkling, if you'll remember, goes back to when God set up the rules for the tabernacle sacrifices. The priest would wash some items and sprinkle other items during the ceremonial cleansing in, used in their various sacrifices. Here God is promising to wash their sin-corrupted souls clean when He brings them into His kingdom. This is an exclusive work that only God performs. When He says, I will, that is singular. I, God alone, will. This is not a joint effort between God and people. Instead, regeneration involves the solitary act of God alone. This passage also says that God will cleanse you from all your filthiness 
and from all your idols. This is a reference to the passages in Numbers 19, Exodus 30, and Psalm 51. Each of these includes a reference to using water for purification and the symbolism of divine purification. All of this ceremonial washing depicted the cleansing power of God in the hearts of people. The washing away of sin is also mentioned in Zechariah 13.1, which says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I think it's important and really interesting to note that if you look at the passage right before Zechariah 13.1, right at the end of chapter 12, in uh, beginning in verse 10, now that section in my Bible is entitled, Him Whom They Pierced. So Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for only for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The Apostle John in chapter 19, verse 37, he refers to this chapter in his account of the crucifixion of our Savior and the piercing of His side. So here we have a foretelling of the death of Jesus and Zechariah prophesying on that day that a fountain will be opened for the cleansing for our sin. Referring to Lawson's book again, he says, As the leading teacher of Israel, Nicodemus would have been well acquainted with these passages. Further, he should have known the most basic truth they represent. When Jesus explicitly said to him that he must be born of water, he meant it as a symbol of regeneration. This radical heart change and the inner washing of the soul by the Spirit. In the new birth, the Lord sprinkles clean water upon filthy sinners and makes them clean. This is a spiritual cleansing that purifies us from the soul defilement of sin. Such a washing permanently removes the indelible sin stain that exists within the human heart. Regeneration cleanses from sin by this purifying of the Holy Spirit. So like all of us, Nicodemus had to learn that God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Again, like us, Nicodemus had to come to an understanding that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. By God's grace through faith in Him, he had to realize that Jews are not automatically credited with righteousness because of their ancestry, Jews and Gentiles alike have to look to Christ to live. Nicodemus had to learn that whosoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe 
is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. He had to see that his natural birth into the world as a descendant of Abraham was not sufficient to enter the kingdom. He had to be born again. He had to be born of the Spirit and washed in Christ's redeeming blood. I wonder, assuming that the Nicodemus I'm going to mention here is the same Nicodemus, but I believe he was. I wonder when Nicodemus accompanied Joseph of Arimathea to take down the bruised and bloodied body of the Lord Jesus from that cruel Roman cross, if his mind went back to that conversation in the middle of the night that he had with Jesus when he came to see the Lord and started to understand that unless he was born of water and born of the Spirit, he could not enter the kingdom of God. You know, there was another man in the first century that needed the same spiritual cleansing of his soul. This man was also a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He was in the Sanhedrin. This man, though he had no desire to meet with Jesus to ask questions, his sole purpose was to rid the world of these so-called Christians. He even received official papers to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial where they faced death. The man we know as Saul of Tarsus, according to Philippians 3, 5, and 5 through 6, Saul was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. No one was more devout than Saul. But you know the story. You know the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. He was knocked off his horse by the blinding glory of God. And again here quoting Lawson, in that defining moment, Saul of Tarsus was born again. By a sudden work of grace, he was regenerated. Immediately, his old life passed away. A new life in Christ began. In that split second, this avowed enemy of the gospel changed his allegiance. He became a true follower of Jesus Christ. This professed foe was radically transformed. He became the Apostle Paul, the chief proclaimer of the faith he once sought to destroy. The same heart that was given to Saul is placed within all who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, God has washed you clean and removed your sin. You are not the same person you once were. Now granted, as simple as this sounds, it can be hard to comprehend for our human mind. Let's be careful because sometimes we spend so much time chasing after something that we find difficult to understand that we miss the most important truth. Let's make sure that we fully understand that salvation is by grace alone 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and every man faces the consequences of their sin. Eternal condemnation, but whatever is born of the Spirit that is, but whatever is born of the Spirit that is, born into the family of God, becomes a new creation in Christ who will enter the kingdom of God. Worship team, y'all can uh, start making your way up. As I wrap this up, let me remind you of the main idea of my sermon this morning. God's regenerative work brings new life to our hearts through the spotless cleansing of the Holy Spirit. If this or any idea of being born again, being washed of the water of the Spirit, or being regenerated, is confusing to you, please, please come see me, Kyle, Jasper, Allen, James. See one of us. Please don't wait. Don't leave here today without knowing for sure that you're a new creation in Christ with a pure, regenerated heart. Thank you.